message will be a special Father's Day message. We'll go with that. Amen? But we'll try to apply it to, to the body because the word is going out. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time. And again, Father, we just thank you for this day. And I pray, Father, that you would uh, just open up your word to us. I pray that our eyes would be open to see what you have to say to us. Our ears would be open to hear uh, what you are saying to us. And, Father, that we would walk in the truth that we learn. And so we thank you, Father. And we just pray your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Let me open up with a scripture. And you're probably going to have to take notes because I wrote a lot of mine down and we'll just, uh, we'll thump around. If you can follow, if you can hang, just warm up. Here we go. Warm up your, just get them ready because we're going to be, we're going to be uh, racing through the scriptures. We just finished the book of Malachi on Wednesday night. And the book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It closes out with this scripture. Malachi chapter 4 verse 6 says, And he, speaking of God, will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Turning the hearts of the fathers back to the children, turning the hearts of the children back to the father. And so in the end times, there will be a separation of fathers' hearts towards their children and children's hearts away from their fathers. And so I find that pretty interesting because I believe that we're living in the last days and how many individuals have had a father not only present but represent the Lord to them in their lives. Um, The percentages are small. I was looking at the statistics and there are different groups of individuals. 75% of their fathers are not in the home. And as you go down through the different races, you just see that there are many fathers that are absent and not present. And oftentimes when you do a study and contrast mothers and fathers, mothers are like, thank you, mom, you're great. And then dads are like, dad, you blew it. You're a loser. You got to get it right. And so we oftentimes beat dads up and we elevate moms. But we want to learn. We want to learn from individuals in the scriptures who were dads. We want to learn positive and negative. So what I did in the Mother's Day message was I highlighted three different females that were moms in the Bible. We looked at Eve. We looked at her contribution. We looked at some of the challenges within the curse of her being, uh, having a desire to lead her husband and rule over her husband and how I pointed out that it would be far more beneficial if you take that scripture in Timothy that says that a wife will be saved through childbearing and that word saved would be zozo in the Greek and it's come into the fullness of her salvation as she takes her rightful place instead of trying to rule her husband take responsibility where God has placed her over her children and then submit under her husband in leadership. And so we went over that. I looked at Hannah and Hannah prayed a long time. She was barren and she had no children and God was waiting until she was lined up with his will and right when she said, God, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. Bingo, there we go. That's what God was waiting for. He gave her a child. She gave birth to Samuel And she gave Samuel right back to the Lord as she promised. Um, So I kind of use that to say if um, there's something that we've been praying on for a long time, then maybe the Lord is waiting for our hearts to line up with his will. And he wants to give us the desires of our heart as we delight in him. 
And then we looked at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and what an incredible example Mary is. A, a young, very young lady, and all of the gossip and the talk about her being with child but yet not having relations. And I'm sure people were like, mm-hmm, yeah, sure, uh-huh, yeah, we believe you. It was a virgin birth. And we talked about that and all the heartache that she must have went through. And being at the foot of the cross and watching her son being crucified and the pain sometimes that having children brings in a life, and yet she was faithful, faithful through it all. And so we looked at that. And so for the fathers, I just I picked a couple... Three, four, four examples. We're going to look at Abraham, and Abraham shows us how he put God first and he walked by faith. We're going to look at Jacob and Eli, and Jacob and Eli are our negative examples. Jacob showed favoritism, and we shouldn't do that with our children. Eli uh, didn't discipline his children, and we are called as fathers to make sure that we discipline our children. Disciple, teach, not just beat, spank right? It's discipline, disciple, discipline them. And then we're going to look at a father in the New Testament um, who definitely got this thing figured out and did it right. So let's start with Abraham. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. I'll give you a summary of Abraham, and I'll, I'll try to be quick with the three, and then we'll spend hopefully a little bit of time with the last one in the New Testament. So in Genesis, God plucks this guy out of the world and he wants to start a new race. He has these people that are his creation, his people all over the world, and he wants to start this new race of people that would be dedicated to him, Jews. Um, He wants to start the nation of Israel, this people that would walk by faith and they would be a theocratic society where they would be God-ruled, governed by God is what Israel means. And so... Um, he plucks this guy out of Ur of the Chaldees named Abraham. Abraham is just a, a normal dude and God wants to show favor and bless the world through this one guy. And so he promises him that he's going to make him uh, a father of multitudes, of, of, of just as many as stars of the, of the sky, as many, sa- as, what is it, sand, grains of sand, Uh, there are, you know, that's how many children or descendants he will have. And so he waits for a long, long, long time to see this promised child come forth and gives birth to Isaac after he tries to help God out, giving birth uh, with his handmaiden uh, Hagar uh, to Ishmael. But God says, no, that's that's not the one that uh, I'm going to show or bless the world through. It's Isaac. And so God finally blesses him with Isaac and he grows up and he's with him and, 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 and Abraham is just overwhelmed and overjoyed to have this promise fulfilled in this son Isaac. And then God asks for something that's incredible in Genesis chapter 22. He says, I want you to take your son, your one and only son. See, God doesn't recognize our sins, which is incredible, He doesn't recognize where he was trying to help God out with Ishmael. He says, you're one and only son, and I want want you to take him on Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to give him over to me. And in Genesis 22, verses 7 and 8, it's written, But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but 
Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And I'm told that in the original language, it reads, God will provide himself, not for himself, but God will literally provide himself as the sacrifice, which would, he would do through Jesus Christ on the cross, on the same mountain that um, Abraham would go to offer and sacrifice Isaac. And so as they head up the hill, of course, Abraham lays his son on the altar. And as he is, by faith, about to take the knife and sacrifice his son to the Lord, God stops his hand. And there's a, a sacrifice that's caught in the bush. And that is what's offered. And, I mean, if you have children, uh, imagine, I mean, doing that in obedience to God. As God is calling you to do something that is unthinkable for any parent to literally sacrifice them on the altar to God. And yet through faith, Abraham shows us, and it's told to us in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham believed that if God was asking him to do this, then God would simply raise him up again. Let me read you the scripture. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, by faith, verse 17, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, and Isaac, your seed, shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And so his faith would be tested when God called him to do what God called him to do. And he shows that he was a man of faith, walking by faith. And so as good of a father as we can be, as good of a father as anybody can be, it would be pointless and useless if we weren't men of faith. Because the best we can do is provide for things that are temporal, things that are earthly, things that will be here today and gone tomorrow. And so God is first and foremost calling us to place him first as we walk by faith. And the language of eternity and the language of heaven will always be the language of faith. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who believe in him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so God is first calling us to walk by faith. And with all of the trials and the tests that take place in this world, we have to be men of faith. We have to look to the Lord and obey what God is calling us to each step of the way. So number one, Abraham, God first. He put God first as he walked by faith. Number two, Jacob. Turn to Genesis chapter 37. Jacob is an interesting character. He would be the twin of his brother Esau coming out of the womb. His name means heel catcher, right? He's trying to bring the brother back in because the brother's trying to get out first. He wants the birthright even in the womb. Just a conniver, that Jacob. And so Jacob would eventually, through his multiple wives, give birth to the 12 children that would be the 12 uh, nations or what are they the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel and so his children would be the 12 tribes but Jacob gives us a negative example of something we shouldn't do in Genesis chapter 37 notice verses 3 and 4 
Now Israel, uh, his name, Israel, Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And so favoritism within a family is something that we're called not to do. What it does is it provokes our children. And it's not a good thing. And so we as fathers need to be careful to make sure that we are uh, dealing with our children as individuals, not lumping them into the same category as the others, but at the same time not elevating one above another. And that doesn't mean that in your heart you can't connect better. Oftentimes, this is what I see, uh, just an observation that I've made. Oftentimes when people have more than one child, you know, they connect with one or of those children a little more than the other. And that's not bad. Their personalities maybe are more uh, just, you know, gelling together or, or just, I don't know what it is, but th- that's not bad or that's not sinful. It's when there's favoritism shown and you have double standards or triple standards that's horrible. And so one kid can get away with murder and the other kid can't even blink wrong without, you know, having it be... A problem, And so that favoritism and what Jacob did, uh, it caused the brothers to hate their brother, literally, so much so that they tried to kill him. They dug a pit and they threw him in it and they were going to just leave him for dead. But eventually they see these slave traders. We can see God's sovereignty over the story of this whole thing with Joseph, but at the same time, Jacob as the father is indicted and that's something that we shouldn't do. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, the Bible says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And then in Colossians 3.21, the Bible says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So as parents, we need to, as fathers, we need to be careful not to show favoritism, double standards with our children. Hold them accountable to the same things. If one is held accountable in this way, then the others should be as well. Our third person is found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you want to jump over there. And so now we're looking at this birth of Samuel, and Eli is the priest, but Eli doesn't do a good job at disciplining his children. And today, a lack of discipline within uh, parents is rampant. All you have to do is go to a restaurant or Target. And I don't know what it is about Target that just makes kids go buck wild. In my day, it was Kmart. You'd go to Kmart to get a whooping because Kmart's where you acted up. But now today, it seems to be Target. Go to Target if you want to see how kids behave or a restaurant. And it really comes down to a lack of discipline. And and it's unfortunate. And I don't know if it's the day in which we're, we're living and the age in which we're living where um, our foods, everybody's allergic to everything now in a day, nowadays, right? It makes them go bonkers. And maybe, I don't know, when I was a kid, nobody was allergic to anything because, you know, my mom's antiseptic was wiping her, her spit on her hand and wiping the dirt off of me. And the seatbelt was her, you know, just holding me if uh, we were going to crash or something. And it all seemed to work out. But today, uh, I don't know if it's we codify the children or we give them an excuse or a valid reason for why they act up and misbehave. And uh, I have a friend who has a son who is legitimately special ed. He's autistic. And he has minimal understanding, but yet he has understanding. And my friend 
disciplines his son accordingly to his understanding. So he doesn't hold him accountable to something that he can't do because of his limited understanding, but he does hold him accountable to what he does understand. He used to be a runner. He's two things. He loves water and he loves to just run out of open door. And so if there's an open door, he, he, he just jets. And so I remember my friend telling me about this and he said um, there was a time where uh, he was talking to the psychologist and just understanding what his son understands and what he doesn't understand. And so he tells him, son, I am under the impression, I've been told by this expert that you understand you're not supposed to run out the door. I'm just letting you know, next time you run out the door, you're going to know about it. And so the screen door opened and boom, he runs out the door, spanks him, never ran out the door again has an ability to understand and take in. He might not understand daddy's saying what he means, but he's going to know after that spanking, daddy says what he means and he means what he says. And so again, I don't know if it's within our culture that we've given reasons or excuses to not discipline, but the Bible talks a lot about it. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, notice verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And so that's a failure, number one. Uh, Obviously, everyone has a free will, but Eli failed to introduce the Lord to his children. Guys, that's job number one. According to Malachi, the reason God gave us children is because he wants a godly heritage. He wants us to give those children back to him. They don't belong to us. They're on loan to us from God, and God wants his kids back. And so Eli failed to do that. Notice verse 17 in 1 Samuel Chapter 2, it says, Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And so not only did they not know the Lord, but they were robbing from God. They were stealing from God. Notice verses 22 through 25 in 1 Samuel 2. It says, Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not good, uh, a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. They had reached a point of no return. Father's influence was, wasn't what it was supposed to be when they were young and impressionable, and he had missed his opportunity through a lack of discipline. And so very important for us to understand the disciplining of our children. It's always in love. It's always corrective in nature. It's always for reconciliation, bringing back reconciliation, ultimately to God first, Because when we sin, we sin against God. And so when our kids are defiant, you draw the line in the sand. You will not go this far. They cross it and say, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'm going to discipline you. That's what I'm going to do. And they get the point. They get the point. Again, that we say what we mean and we mean what we say. Uh, I didn't raise my children with the counting rule one two i'm gonna i'm gonna count three i was one one we're done so i mean i don't i don't know i whatever works for you i'm not opposed to counting but again i've seen it at target it doesn't always work i'm just saying 
In the book of Proverbs, chapter 13, verse 24, the Bible says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. And then in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, the Bible says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. And so again, um, I, I don't know if this is a good thing, but I hear a lot of parents say, well, my parents did this, and look how I turned out. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, yeah, you didn't turn out that well, bro. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying, you might not want to use that argument for a positive thing. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. I mean, if we had great examples, fantastic. Follow the great examples. If we had bad examples, shun it. It's the past. Put it behind you. Look to the Lord. Ultimately, He wants to teach us. He wants to show us the right way the proper way. And I don't think it's, it's ever too late for us as fathers to acknowledge and change. And we have to be willing and humbled to be able to say, you know what, I made some mistakes. And, and all right, I'm looking to make some changes. And so at any point that we discover that, hey, maybe I didn't do that in, in the best way, but I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to acknowledge that I can learn. And I think as we do that, we continue to grow as well. And I I don't think there's a kid alive that wouldn't love to hear from a father, hey, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. Can you you even help me? Can I solicit you in helping me in this area, in this arena? What kid wouldn't want to receive that and, and just go with that? So that's our discipline, Father, that lacked that. Last, Father, let's turn to Luke chapter 15 together. Luke chapter 15, Luke's gospel. This is an an example in the New Testament. And as I looked for examples, I thought, what better father than the father, the ultimate father? Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is one parable that we often break down into three parables or three different stories. It's a neat section of Scripture. And this is where we're going to wrap up. Luke chapter 15. I want you to notice verses 1 and 2. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, speaking of Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Their indictment of Jesus is that he eats with sinners and he receives them. And yet, wouldn't that be a compliment? That he's not judging them, that he knows exactly what's in the heart of man, but he receives sinners and he eats with them. And so to that response, verse 3, so he spoke, notice, this parable to them, saying, so it's a parable, it's not these three parables, The first section, if you will, is found in verses 4 through 7, and it's the sheep that has gone astray. And it's a picture of Jesus who leaves the 99 sheep in the safety of the corral to go after the one that's wandered away. Now, it doesn't tell us why this sheep has wandered away. It could be just um, carelessness, neglect, just not paying attention. But nonetheless, Jesus goes after that sheep. And it speaks really of the sovereignty of God, how even when we mess up, Jesus goes and reaches us wherever we're at. 
and he brings us back into the safety of the fold. And then in the next section, verses 8 through 10, it's the parable of the lost coin, and it speaks of the Holy Spirit. And again, the, the, the coin was lost. How did the coin get lost? Well, we don't really know. It doesn't really tell us how, how the coin got lost, but again, maybe it was just an oversight or, or I don't know, you know, no fault of, of the coin, if you would, right? The coin is lost, but there's value within the coin. And then it's swept and, and it's found and there's rejoicing. And it talks about, again, just the individual to no fault of their own, maybe something has happened. So maybe somebody did something to them and it caused them to, to have an off understanding of God and of truth. But, but nonetheless, the Holy Spirit is seeking to save that which is lost. And so the Holy Spirit goes after that one. And then the, the one section we're going to look at starts in verse 11. And we've heard it. It's the parable of the prodigal son. Verse 11 says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall, falls to me. So he divided them to, uh, to... See, I can't see. It's, it's the eyes. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into all the fields to feed swine, or into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to, uh, and to spare, and I perish with hunger? And so this son makes a conscious choice that he wants his father's good, but he doesn't want his father. He wants what his father can give him, but he doesn't really care much about the father and his values and his way of life. And so through a request that is an insult to this father, he says basically, give me the goods. I want to go do my own thing. The father doesn't force him. And, and we're looking at fathers because we want to learn. This is a good example of what a father does. So this father doesn't force his son to live by his rules under his roof as he wants to leave. Now, if he was his under his roof, it'd be a different story. But as he wants to leave, he says, all right, here it is. And sometimes we have taught our children what we can as they're under our roof. And then it's the world that's going to finish the job. The Lord loves them more than we do. It's scary at times to let them go, but there's things that they need to learn that we can no longer teach at times. And so this father does that which is unthinkable and he lets his son go. I'm sure his heart is broken. I'm sure he's praying for his boy. As we see later in the, in the, in the story, I think he's out on the porch looking down that field every day waiting for his son to come home because he runs at him. But nonetheless, he doesn't force and that's difficult for us as parents. We, we, we probably never think our kids are ready to move on or, or to go and be on their own. As we watch them, we know, oh my gosh, this kid's going to kill themselves out there. I don't know what's happening. 
But nonetheless, this father says, all right, this is the request. He's come of age. He's, he's young, but at an age where I got to let, let the world do what it needs to do. And so in verse 17, it says, but when he came to himself, he said, I read that, verse 18, I will rise, arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And I'm sure as he's on his way, he's rehearsing this. Because if, as you read the next uh, thing, when he comes before his father, it's, it's exactly as he said it, this is what I'm going to tell my dad. Verse 20 goes on, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Uh, this is the key verse. This is the verse that jumped out at me as I was studying. And this is what God is currently doing in my personal heart as a minister, as a pastor, as a father, as a grandfather, as a friend, as a husband. This heart of compassion that God has is, is, is we don't have an ability, I think, to just take it in how much God loves us. I just don't think, because there's nothing like this in the world. There, there's nothing that we can point to and compare it to. And we can have great relationships and we, have, we can have great leaders and great examples of individuals who are in our lives who we can say, man, that person just, that person loves me. That's awesome. Or I had a dad or a mom that loved me and that's sweet. Or I have, you know, a significant other that loves me and that's, but we have nothing to compare this heavenly father that we have who, I mean, we have uh, so many strikes you're out rule. Don't, don't all of us? I mean, isn't it healthy to have that? Wouldn't it be discerning to have that? And if we didn't have that, then I guess people would just run all over us all the time and we'd end up dead or hurt all the time, right? We have uh, so many strikes in your out rule. And people can beat us down so many times before we're like, that, that's enough. I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm cutting you off. But, but God just doesn't seem to have this as you study the scriptures. And again, I, I've been a Christian for 28 years and two months, 28 years. And, and this is like new. It's a new lesson that God is showing me. Johnny, you don't, you don't know how much I can love yet. But Lord, I've known you 28 years. You've shown, Johnny, you have no clue how gracious I can be, how long I can suffer with individuals. And, and as an extension of me, I want you to suffer long with people. I want you to be gracious to people. I don't want you to tell people that I'm done with them because I'm not done with them. I suffer long. And, and again, as I was just reading this and studying it, this, this compassion of this father, it jumps out at me. This father had every right to scold this kid when he comes home. Yeah, make you a hired servant. You best believe I'm going to make you a hired servant. Yeah, <sighs> None of that. You, you, you don't see that. It's almost, again, like I mentioned, he's looking out and he sees his son on the horizon and does what is wrong in the Middle East to do. He pulls up his robe and he runs at him. And, and he comes 
upon him and smothers him with the love that he has in his heart for him. And he covers him with the robe and he puts the ring on and sandals on his feet and has a party, a celebration. And, and I just, at any point that we, as children of God, recognize, Lord, I've messed up. I messed up. I want to come home. God is not wagging finger, shaking head. That sound that my wife makes, she did, I can't do it real well, but you know, that sucking in sound of, of just disgust. None of that with this father. He rehearses at verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. And be, He can't even finish. Verse 22 says, But the father said to his servant, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us be merry or eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. And again, he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. And I think of the senseless condemnation that the enemy brings to us when we stumble, when we fall, when we make mistakes. And he loves that we live in that condemnation. And if we truly study the Bible, all we have to do is look to the Lord. All we have to do is turn to the Lord. And he receives us. Open arms graciously. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go. And therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. The father comes out to plead with this Pharisaical son, he comes out to him. The father goes to him to communicate with him. Verse 29, so he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, You killed the fatted calf for him. Notice the father's response. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. So to Eli in the Old Testament, who didn't discipline his son, and to Jacob, who showed favoritism, Notice this father and how he treats both of these sons and he tells the older, you're wrong and these blessings have always been here for you. These blessings have always been here for you. Now if I bless your younger son, recognize why I did it. I did it because it was right. And so this father models for us that it's always the right time to do the right thing. And that's what we need to do. And I've seen this. I've seen an angry parent and then the other parent goes overboard and tries to be like almost compensating for this parent. So this is the mad parent that always yells at you. So I'm going to 
sneak your ice cream and cookies, but don't tell because, you know. And it's like instead of doing what's right, they go overboard and they're trying to balance the scales of the extreme. You know what? Let this wacko parent be what they're going to be. Do what's right. This parent doesn't allow, this father doesn't allow the attitude of his son to go overboard and do something ridiculous. He just speaks lovingly the truth to his older son. Son, I did what was right for your brother. If you don't see that, that's between you and God. I've always had these blessings for you. They're always at your disposal. He doesn't go to an unhealthy extreme. He doesn't go wacko because of the wacko response of this younger son. And so the example of this third or, yeah, this third vignette within this one parable of the lost son uh, shows us the heart of a father and the heart of our heavenly father who will always receive us when we come home, who will never shun us. He'll never leave us or forsake us, the book of Hebrews says. If you know anything about the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, you know that Israel went close to the Lord and away from the Lord, close to the Lord, away from the Lord, close to the Lord, away from the Lord. And one of my favorite scriptures in the book of Nehemiah shows the heart of God. It's verse 17. Let me read it to you. It says, They, speaking of the nation of Israel, refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage, but... You are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. God would not forsake the nation of Israel. He does not forsake his children. And so are there times where people meet as did the sons of Eli, the end of their rope? Yes, I believe it's that point of no return, and I believe that we give up on ourselves far sooner than God would give up on us. But if you have breath, if anyone has breath, and they have a desire to turn to the Lord, the Lord will in no way, the Bible declares, cast them out. So we need to be representative of God in that sense. And I know that it gets difficult because we try to live our lives by a standard, and so we know that God has a standard. Um, I like John Corson's take on discipline. Basically, he says our sins will discipline us we as people need to just love people, love people. And this newfound thing that the Lord is showing me of how long-suffering he is and how patient he is and how he comes at people with love, um, I'm just seeing it through um, strongholds that people have in their lives, through misunderstandings of God and even life and how life is supposed to work. And... We can sit here and look at these three parables and we can indict people because oftentimes uh, we're compassionate towards some who are in sin, but others who are in sin, we have no patience for them. So we might say to the person that was abused as a child, well, well, I feel for you because you have an excuse or a reason why you're like that. But somebody who just drinks and parties, well, they're, they're creating their own sin or somebody who's slothful with money, that's their fault and, Yet the heart of God is not like that. These three parables represent three different situations where God comes at it. And for that sheep that is lost, God goes out and seeks them. For that coin that was misplaced, wasn't the coin's fault. The Holy Spirit is seeking and sweeping and, and doing 
just everything with it, its, its ability outside of, you know, taking over their free will, but finds it and rejoices when it's found. And for the son who's lost, the father in heaven will let him stray, but when he comes to his senses, he receives him back. And so if we're going to represent God and if we're going to be good fathers, if you will, then I think we need to have the heart of God and we need to be compassionate. We need to be patient and we need to be gracious and we need to suffer long. And that is an evidence of the work that God is doing in our hearts. Patience with ourselves for sure, but patience with those who God has given us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, and where we cut people off, where we write people off, Lord, we know that you are desiring that they would be reconciled to you first and reconciled in relationships. So Father, I pray that we would suffer long with people. I pray that we would discipline where we need to. I pray, Lord, that we would be men of faith, fathers of faith, uh, children of faith that trust you and take you at your word. And Father, I just thank you. I thank you for what we can learn about you within the scriptures, uh, for the good and the bad examples that we see within the individuals in scripture. And I pray that we would learn from them, Father. So thank you, Father, just for your word. We thank you for this time. And we just pray that you would continue to go before us. In Jesus' name, amen.